0: Revelation chapter 3, go ahead and turn to the back of the book, Revelation chapter 3. For those of you visiting today, we have started earlier this year a systematic verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and thus far we have been going through the letters to the seven churches, and so we've talked about Ephesus, the loveless church, and Smyrna, the persecuted church, Pergamum. The compromising church. Last week we looked at Thyatira, which was the immoral church. And now today, we come to Sardis, the dead church. Fred Craddock was a wonderful preacher for several years. He wrote a book, a memoir, about his 50 plus years in the ministry. And he talked in that book about the first little church where he pastored as a young man fresh out of seminary. It was a little country church in the Tennessee mountains near Oak Ridge. The area where he pastored had been rural and very small until around the 1950s. Then there was an atomic energy boom. And overnight, the little town of Oak Ridge just sort of grew up. And it was filled with an influx of construction workers who came and lived in these hastily put together trailer parks. And as a young man full of zeal and passion to reach people with the gospel, uh, Fred Craddock thought, we need to reach those people. Well, he suggested the plan of how they were going to go into the trailer parks and reach the workers there. And it got bogged down in a deacon's meeting. He said, what we need to do is we need to flood the community and we need to go invite and present the gospel and and just minister to these people that God has sent us. And the chairman of the deacons said, uh, was very skeptical, Oh, I don't know about that, Pastor. Uh, I don't think they'd fit in here at our little country church. By the way, they're just going to be here for a little while. They're just temporary workers. So eventually the campaign came to a vote before the whole church. Well, in the business meeting, somebody stood up. And he said, I move that in order to be a member of this church, you have to own property in this county. And so with that, the motion passed, and the commission to go out and reach the new people died. Fred Craddock said he didn't last very long there at that church. He realized that he couldn't get anything done because nobody wanted to change. Nobody wanted to reach the lost. All they wanted to do is just sit there and play games and have church. They wanted people that looked exactly like them, thought like them, and there was no passion to reach anybody. Well, years later, Fred Craddock was on a vacation. His wife was with him. And he said, hey, let's go drive around. Sure enough, they ended up back near Oak Ridge, Tennessee. While they were joyriding, he told his wife, "Say, hey, I want to take you and I want to show you the first church where I pastored. They had trouble finding it at first, and then off of a major state highway, they turned down a little road and then onto a gravel driveway, and suddenly they found the little white church that he pastored. He was amazed because when they pulled in the parking lot, it was full. Motorcycles, trucks, cars... I mean, it was a hard time finding a parking space. Then as they drew closer to the building, they figured out why the church was full. For the sign outside explained it all. Barbecue! All you can eat. You see, that church had become now a barbecue restaurant. He went inside. He was amazed to see what had happened The old pews that had been hewn from the ancestors from an old poplar tree were now used as seating for the tables as people gathered around and they stuffed their face with pork and chicken and ribs. He noticed the pulpit had become part of the decoration. The old pump organ was shoved over in the corner and that was the place where people went and got their forks and knives and barbecue sauce. Craddock nudged his wife. As they sat down to eat, he said, it's a good thing this is no longer a church because all these people around here inside wouldn't be welcome. Wow. What a story. What a tragic story of the demise of a church. Well, what Fred Craddock described is an all-too-common problem in America. The long, slow death of a church. Now, the death of a church is not an event, it's a process. When churches die, they usually go through several years of prolonged decline rather than a sudden crash. The old-time evangelist Vance Havner, he wrote these words almost 50-some years ago. Quote, he said, The life cycle of a dying church runs a certain four-step course. What starts with a man, grows into a movement, then it becomes a machine, and finally it is reduced to merely a monument. Man, movement, machine, monument. Now if you look at the statistics, they are quite alarming. According to the Southern Baptist Convention's annual report in 2017, they said that 65% of churches in the SBC have either declined or plateaued. In fact, they also reported that about every year, 900 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention have to close their doors for good. The only thing that offsets that, of course, are the new church plants that start up. But if you look at the numbers, we're not planting churches fast enough to replace all the dying churches. So, the question that every church has to ask themselves The question that every church must wrestle with is how do we keep from becoming a statistic? How do we keep the ministry vibrant so that in a decade or two, this place isn't a barbecue joint or a mosque or a bar? I'm not trying to be a doomsday prophet here today. But the reality is that every church is just one generation away from extinction. And the that can't happen here mentality is a dangerous one for any church to adopt because it assumes invulnerability. Now, when we come to Revelation chapter 3 and the first six verses, what we read is the autopsy of a dead church and the presiding mortician is none other than Jesus Christ. This is the fifth letter in this series of seven and here at sardis we read that the believers here at this church were barely clinging on to life now this letter is very unique because as you compare it to the other that we have studied the other four that we've studied what you notice is that in those previous four Jesus had at least one good thing to say about the church no matter how messed up they were or what sin they were tolerating Jesus at least had something to compliment about Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and Thyatira. But when he comes to Sardis, he doesn't have anything good to say about this group. It's very sobering when you read it because it forces us to face the reality that what happened in Sardis can happen here. It can happen in any church in any era. Any church can die. doesn't matter how much money they've got in the bank, how dynamic their preacher is, or what their history might be, any church can die. What happened at Sardis can happen at any church. Why is that? Well, we're going to notice number one this morning, the reason for dying churches. Why do churches die like this one at Sardis? Jesus gives several reasons, but if you'll read with me in verse 1, you'll see the reason for dying churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's talking about Jesus. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now why do churches die? Well, first reason that I can think of is that churches die because they are complacent spiritually. They die when they are complacent spiritually. Now, it's important for you to understand a little bit of background in history about Sardis to understand fully what's going on here. Historians are quick to point out that the city of Sardis had suffered defeat after defeat. In fact, one of the most Notable defeats militarily in their history happened in the year 547 B.C. And it happened at the hands of the Persians. The king of Sardis was a man named Croesus, And there he is pictured. Croesus believed that Sardis was an impenetrable fortress. It was The city itself was actually surrounded by high mountain cliffs on three sides. Well, the Persian army came to march against the city in 547 and they were led by Cyrus the Great. Cretius, though, thought that there's no way they can take our town. We're protected. We have a wall. They can't get in. We can outlast any siege that they throw upon us. So for 14 days, Cyrus the Great had his army surround the city. He offered a reward to any of his soldiers that could find a way into the city. story goes like this. There was a Persian soldier who noticed a weakness in the city's defenses. He saw a sentry walking across the top of the city wall one evening. And as he walked, he took his helmet off and he, it slipped out of his hand. and He dropped it and it fell on the outside of the wall. The Persian soldier watched the man as he went down a staircase and emerged at the base of the wall through a secret passageway, picked up his helmet, and returned back up to the top of the wall. And with that, the Persian soldier found the secret passage into the city. The story goes that that night, the Persian soldier who saw the witness led a group of men through that passageway of the cliff. There they came into the city. They were unmolested, opened the city gates, the whole army of Cyrus marched in and they took the city without a skirmish. In fact, King Croesus was in bed when they came and arrested him and took his city from him. Now the city finally limped on for a few more years after that, for a few centuries actually, but it never quite recovered. Now you say, Derek, why is all that important? Because what happened to the people of Sardis was also what happened at the church. In fact, David Jeremiah makes this connection in his study guide. Listen to what he said. He said, by the time this letter was written, Sardis had been taken captive twice due to arrogance and laziness. Sardis' history is the key to understanding what happened to the church. The city's downfall is a metaphor for the church's downfall. Sardis was prosperous but decaying. Its glory days long gone. Both the city and the church it contained had lost their vitality. They were living off the residual glow of the past. Now it's very easy to make that connection between Yesterday and today. And as we read this, we can understand what the Sardis Syndrome is all about. The Sardis Syndrome infects a church when they become spiritually complacent and when they have an unhealthy commitment to live off of the past. We don't need to change. We're just fine. Everything's going to be okay. We were here a hundred years ago. We'll be here a hundred more years. And churches begin their death spiral when they are merely content to maintain the status quo and they have lost their desire to trust God for a new battle or a new mountain to move or a new vision to reach their community. That is when churches begin to die. When they become complacent spiritually and say in the pridefulness of their heart, we're just fine. Look at our budget. Look at our membership. We are going to make it. And what happens when that mentality seeps in is that dying churches go from being mission-minded to maintenance-minded. Maintaining what they have rather than going out and reaching and building something new for the kingdom of God. In other words, the church culture goes from being a hospital for sinners to a museum for saints. Old Warren Wiersbe, he said it best years ago, He said, the past can be a rudder that guides you or an anchor that hinders you. When you study churches that die across the country, you notice one pattern, and it is this, that the past is king. You know what the last seven death words of a church are? We ain't never done it that way before. (laughs) There's a refusal to change. In fact, there are some churches, people would rather die than change. God help us. Churches die when they are complacent spiritually. Then we see second reason why churches die is they die when they are compromised doctrinally. Another way to measure your church health is to observe how the Word of God is handled from the pulpit. Now there's two great ditches into which any church can fall into to the right and to the left, and they're both equally as damaging. There's liberalism, which takes away from God's Word, and then there is legalism, which adds to God's Word. And when a church leans to one direction or the other, then they are compromised doctrinally, and they've moved away from the simple preaching of the gospel and are in danger of decline. You don't have to go very far to see this. Visit other churches in the area other churches in the country, and you will see where they have compromised to one side or the other. Let's talk about liberalism. Liberalism takes away from God's Word. What liberalism does is it denies the power of the Scripture so that you walk into a liberal church and you know you won't need your Bible because the preacher won't be preaching from it. Because all that they offer are self-help pep talks. They don't actually believe that the Word of God is inspired and infallible. They say, well, you know, there's no such thing as hell. And so they compromise on doctrine. We don't preach about sin in this church, they might say, because that's what drives people away. Or they'll read of some behavior, some immorality that's condemned in the Scriptures, and they say, well, times have changed, and that's not really a sin, and we need to update our belief system to match the century that we live in. That's liberalism. The other side of this is legalism. And legalism is just as damning to a church. Legalism adds to God's Word. It adds prohibition to the Scriptures. And so, you can go in some churches and they say, you can't come in here unless you're dressed a certain way. Don't bother coming to our church because if you don't like this kind of music, you won't fit in. We only read out of the King James Bible. No other Bible exists in the world. Or, you better dress that way. Or, you better have your hair cut that way. And that's that's legalism. And it's just as wrong. That's the sin of the Pharisees in the New Testament. Liberalism is the equivalent of spiritual erosion. And legalism is spiritual suffocation. And you can tell a church is going downhill when they have embraced one side or the other. Hey, listen, why can't we just stay with the simple Word of God? If you're visiting today and you don't have a church family and you're looking for a good church, let me assure you that every time that I am here, this book is opened and we preach directly from the Word of God. We don't cut corners. We don't compromise because this is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. And if there's a problem with us, we have to align ourselves with it. Churches die when they are compromised doctrinally when they are complacent spiritually. And then another reason churches die is because they are cold evangelistically. Churches die when they are cold evangelistically. What's the first word in Jesus' great commission? Go! Not sit and wait for people to come to us. But in so many churches, the reason why they fall off is because the Great Commission becomes the great omission. Oh, well, that's not for us. <laughs> that's not for me. That's just for preachers and evangelists. No, we are all called to reach people for Jesus Christ. You may not be a preacher, but you can be a reacher. You can reach your neighbor. You can reach your family. You can reach your coworkers. And usually, this last symptom piggybacks off the other two. Because when churches become complacent, there's no zeal. There's no desire to reach the lost. And when they have compromised doctrinally, when there's no sound doctrine, some churches don't even preach the gospel. So they don't even have a message of sin and salvation. And so you see how they are related. I think about old Johnny Tiller, who's the pastor at Pole Creek when I was a little boy. he, He told a story one time that he went to a church to preach a revival down east. And he said that he was walking around the church one day thinking about his message, meditating, praying. And he's just walking around the church. And he said he walked into one of the rooms there. He opened it up, just curious looking around. And it led to the baptistry. He said he walked down, looked in the baptistry. There were cobwebs hanging down. And over in the corner was a mop and a broom. This church had been so cold evangelistically that they had turned their baptistry into a broom closet. Friend, you know you've got a problem with evangelism in a church when the baptism waters aren't moving anymore. Because nobody's reaching. Nobody has a hunger and a desire to reach the lost. I think about one precious pastor that I know. He had a burden for reaching the community. Scrapped together a little bit of money and bought a van couldn't get anybody in the church to drive the van. So he decided, I'll go out in the trailer parks and I'll pick up the children and bring them to church. Nobody else wanted to do it. So he loaded those kids up in the van, brought them to church, started teaching them. The kids started getting saved. And then the cold water committee showed up. You know exactly who I'm talking about. The wet blanket committee showed up and said, Preacher, we got to do something about these little trailer park kids that are, you're bringing into the church. They're dirty. They leave their little muddy handprints along the wall. Preacher, what are we going to do about these little kids? You know what he said? He said, we're going to love them. There are some churches that are more concerned about their walls being clean than they are about reaching dying souls out in the community. Friend, I would rather wipe snotty noses and repaint every few years than to deal with a church that's a ghost town. If we don't have a passion to reach the community, then friends, what are we doing except playing religious games? Churches die when they are cold evangelistically. The solution to so many church problems, don't have a good budget, not a lot of excitement in the church, no desire to move forward. The solution to a lot of that is go win somebody to the Lord. You'll want to charge hell with a water pistol and it'll start a new work in the life of your church. Let me me ask you a question. If you go to an airport and you walk around and you notice, huh, there's only airplanes leaving this airport but no airplanes coming in. Let's go to a train station. We walk around the train station and you notice, hey, trains leave this station but they never come in. That's odd. Wouldn't you say there'd be a problem there? Take it to the church now. If you go to a church and only people are leaving either by death or by moving or transferring their membership and no new converts coming in, then what would you say about that church? i say it has an evangelism problem. Listen, if the pastor is doing more funerals than he is baptisms, that church doesn't understand the Great Commission or doesn't want to be a part of the Great Commission. So you have a simple choice. We either evangelize or we fossilize. That's true across the board. I don't care how big or how small, how rich or how poor, no matter where the church is located in the world, if the church doesn't want to reach the community, then death sets in. Churches that don't want to reach out are being disobedient to the gospel. And God's not going to bless a disobedient church. That's the reason for dying churches. Man, it's quiet in here. (laughs) Maybe we need to hear this today. Number two, what's the remedy then? Jesus doesn't just leave us sick. He gives us the solution. So we see the remedy for dying churches. In verses 2 and 3, He gives a four-step action plan for how the Sardians can save their dying church. And these principles that he gives are timeless. They are universal. They can work at any church setting no matter what age you are in or where you are located on planet earth. How do you fix a dying church? Step one. We find it in verse two. Revive. Look at what verse two says. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. The time for this church of playing games is long gone. The time for going through the motions was over. Jesus says, you need to wake up. You're about to die. Don't you realize that? The alarm siren was going off. And He's saying, look, if you don't take some drastic measures, if you don't change, you're not going to be here for much longer. The first step to a dying church getting back life again is to realize their peril to be stirred into action and to say, we will not be the generation that closes this door on the church for once and for all. We will not be the generation that sees our community get worse and worse. We will not be the church that gets a name in the community and a reputation that they can't escape. We will not be the church that becomes a mosque or a bar or a barbecue joint. You have to make that decision and that determination. And, church, I've made it in my heart. Have you? Have you decided, by God, this church will not close on my watch? I will sacrifice. I will give. I will work. I will reach out till it hurts if that's what it takes to keep the church going. We will not be the generation that becomes a statistic in the Southern Baptist Convention history book. Liberty Baptist Church, born 1874 or whatever, dead 2000 and whatever. No, sir, don't let it happen. You have to revive. Sometimes the only way that slumbering saints can be awakened is you have to shock them. Reminds me of the story that I heard about a young fella. He was fresh out of seminary. Had never pastored before. Well, this little country church way out in the sticks had been declining for years and years. And they needed a pastor. And he needed a job. <laughs> so he signed up. He said, I'll go pastor that little church that nobody wants to go to. He thought he could turn it around. So he preached his guts out every week. Tried his best to reach out to the community. Nobody wanted to change the church. Nobody wanted to do anything. And so, the day finally came when he said, I've got one... More sermon I can preach. So he called the newspaper. He called the newspaper and he put in an obituary for the church, such and such Baptist church. They were going to have the funeral the next Sunday. He put it in the newspaper. The word got out through the community. In fact, that next Sunday, when he was going to preach the funeral for the church, when you know it, it was finally full. Standing room only. People were standing against the back wall and everything. They had never heard of such a thing. The pastor's going to preach the uh, eulogy for this church. Well, the minister actually had a casket brought in. Set the casket down front. They played songs. He preached a eulogy. Came to the end of the message. He said, "All right, now crowd. I'm going to allow you a few minutes to come through and pay your respects to the church. The church that has died. So he took the flowers off the top of the casket, opened the lid. People started to file around, snake that line around. And as they came through one by one, they weren't expecting what they saw on the inside of that casket. Because when the lid was open and they walked through and they looked down, you know what they saw? They saw themselves because the preacher had put a big mirror there in place of where the body would be. And as the people walked through, they saw themselves there. Why had the church died? Because of their own hearts. Revival must begin in the hearts of God's people. God has to do it. It has to be a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit where of all things Christians, we must get desperate for the Spirit of God and say, God, if You don't revive us, Lord, if You don't give us fresh wind and fresh fire, God, apart from You, we can do nothing. And it's birthed in prayer. And there's a desperation in the hearts of God's people. Lord, it's dark. Lord, this generation is evil. Lord, we're the underdog. We don't have the money. We don't have the resources. But God, we've got you. And we're relying on you to do what only you can do. Revive. That's the first step. The second step is also in verse 2. Redeploy. Look at what it says in verse 2 again. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Notice what he says here to this dying church. Jesus says, look, the work that I have assigned you to do is unfinished. In other words, there's still souls to be saved. There's still new ground to be conquered. There's still new ministries to start, new buildings to build, new projects to undertake, new mission trips to go on. Your work is not done yet. A dying church, the people need to redeploy. They need to go from being on reserve to being on active duty. Why? Because the battle isn't over. Do you know when you can stop serving God, saint? You can stop serving God when they throw dirt in your face at the funeral. That's when you can hang it up and say, my work is done. But how many people serve the Lord then they get to the retirement age and they say, I'm just going to coast. I spent my time teaching Sunday school. I spent my time taking care of children. I spent my time doing this and that. And they quit and they give up on God. And the church suffers. Listen to what Billy Graham said. You want to talk about somebody who knows about not giving up? Listen to what he wrote. He said, quote, God doesn't give His servants retirement parties and gold watches. Moses worked for the Lord till he was 120 years old, and his eyes had not dimmed, nor his strength abated. Caleb and said to Joshua in his old age, Give me this mountain to conquer. A soldier of the gospel wouldn't have it any other way because spiritual desire doesn't age out. Second step for a church is redeploy. Get back out on the firing line. Serve. Give. Pray. You say, I can't do anything. I'm sick. I can't even get around. You can pray. And God can move. You say, I'm not talented, Pastor. I can't sing. I can't preach. But do you love people? Do you love children? Can you serve a plate of food? Can you do something in the church to make it better? And the answer is, if we're all honest, yes, we can. The only way it's going to happen is if we all get on board and say, I'm serving God because I've got just so many years left and I don't want to give up because if I give up, I'm going to lose out on blessings and rewards. And friend, when somebody, when one person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just because of me, it's because the whole church has worked together. Somebody had to sweep the floors. Somebody had to help pay the light bill. Somebody had to sing the song. Somebody had to preach the sermon. It takes everybody in God's body to reach somebody. And yes, God may have called you just to be the pinky toe. (laughs) But when you stub your pinky toe, it hurts, don't it? You know it. So you're important. Redeploy. Third step, return. Look at what he says here. Remember then what you have seen and heard. Keep it. In other words, hey, Sardis, go back to the basics. Return to the old creeds and deeds that you departed from. Go back to just preaching the simple gospel. Sometimes in the church, we just need to go back to the basics, don't we? Go back to regular prayer time. Go back to just obeying the Great Commission. Go back to just taking God at His word. The simple things of worship that honor the Lord. It's not complicated. Listen to me. Revival is not about replacing old things with new things, it's about doing old things with a new heart. And so you return, you redeploy, you revive. And then verse 3, you repent. Remember then what you received and heard it, keep it. Watch this. And say it with me. Repent. It doesn't come out easy, does it? You know why? Because we all have to do it. In other words, what he's saying to this church is, church, what do you need to repent from? What sins have beset you? Well, in a dying church, what can they repent of? Disobedience. Laziness, compromise. And notice this churches that don't repent are in danger of a great judgment. Because look at what he says at the end of verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Oh my goodness. You mean you mean Jesus that the church can actually die? Yes, it can. And he will allow it to die if there is a hardness of heart and a refusal to repent. Friends, there can be no revival where there is no repentance. You can have regret without repentance, but you can't have heaven sent, God born, Holy Spirit inspired revival without repentance. And if you're visiting today and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, let me tell you, you need to repent too. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the most important thing for you to do today when we have this invitation is you come and you repent of your sins. That's a 180 degree turn. You turn from going down the broad way of destruction to the straight and narrow, the opposite direction, and you turn toward Jesus Christ. You give Him your life. You recognize that He died in your place, rose from the grave. You ask Him to give you a new heart and a new life, and He will do that. He will change you from the inside out. Number three. As we finish, we've seen the remedy for dying churches. We've seen the reasons for dying churches. But then, number three, let me leave you with this. The remnant in dying churches. Jesus speaks to the few believers here that are hanging on. And He encourages them. Look at what He says in verse 4. He says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So see here that the Lord reminds All those in a dying church, don't give up. Don't you throw in the towel. Because for those who endure to the end, those who stay faithful, there are wonderful rewards. Namely, he said, they will walk with me in white. Friend, can you think about that? Think about how ugly and soiled and unholy you were before Jesus Christ came into your life. Think about what you were stuck in. Think about how the devil had you in chain. Think about how you were not worthy to even call upon the name of Jesus Christ, but the moment that He came into your life, He called your name and you knew it was the Lord speaking to you. And He said, why don't you take off those old sold garments and let me clothe you now with my righteousness, my goodness, my mercy and my grace. And just like the old prodigal son who came home he said let's put a ring on him let's put new shoes on his feet let's kill the fatted calf because he who was lost is now found he who is far away has come home and friend that's my God that's my Savior I don't care if you're on life support as a church I don't care if you are dead spiritually my God defied the grave Death couldn't hold him. Rome couldn't conquer him. And if he got up out of that grave on the third day, friend, there's still hope for you and me and for every dying church across the land. He can breathe fresh wind and fresh fire on a corpse and bring it up to life again. And he can take that old sinner who's in alcohol and in drugs and in depression and so sin sick they can barely hold their head up and he can give them a new heart and a new life. And friend, the walking dead can become the redeemed of the Lord and walk with Him in white one day in glory. Say amen if that's the gospel or if I'm just making it up. My goodness, what a God we serve. You stay faithful to God in the end because friend, (laughs) I've got a wardrobe that I ain't even put on yet. It's waiting for me in glory. It's white It's pure. It's whiter than snow. And I will have the ability, friend, all those in Christ will have the ability to stroll past the ranks of the angels and kneel before the Lord Jesus Christ and cast a crown before Him and say, Lord, were it not for the cross, I shouldn't be here. But Lord, I worship You today. I crown you with many crowns because worthy is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. I don't know if some of you came to worship today. (laughs) I did because there's hope for every dying church and for every sin sick person. This Lord Jesus Christ says, I can change your past. I can bring life where there's death. I can raise you up out of that grave just by calling your name. (laughs) Think about it. Strolling past the ranks of those angels wearing that white garment, Jesus turning to the Father and saying, This is Clifford my beloved servant. This is Rowena, my beloved servant. This is Neil. This is Tim. This is Preston. This is Tony. This is my beloved servant. Don't you take their name out of the Lamb's book of life. They're with me. Bless God today. Can you say that, church? Can you say that you'll be clothed in the righteousness of Christ or are you depending upon yourself, your own goodness, your own works? Let me close with this. You may not recognize the name Dr. William McKay. But chances are you've sang his words. The story goes that as a teenager William McKay left home. He was going to attend college and he wanted to be a doctor. Well, his mother was terribly worried about him as most mothers are at that point in the young man's life. So as he left the homestead she gave him a Bible. She wrote his name in her own handwriting on the flyleaf leaf of that Bible and said, Son, don't you forget this. Don't you forget the God that I tried to raise you to fear. Well, the young man went off. He lived a debauched life in college. A series of endless drunken revelries and parties. One occasion... His addiction for whiskey got so bad that he had to pawn off some things so he could get enough to buy that next shot of liquor. So he got to rummaging around his room looking for things that he could pawn off. He found there in the bottom of an old crate that Bible that his mama had given him. A couple little knickknacks here and there, an instrument, took it down, pawned it off. Said, How much can I get for this Bible? man at the store told him, he said, that's enough for one shot. So he pawned off the Bible that his mama gave him. He ended up completing medical school. He became a doctor and he served at a major hospital. Well, one day, Mr. McKay was treating a dying patient. A man who had very little time left here on earth. The patient's final request was as he was laying on his deathbed, he asked the nurse, he said, bring me the book. Bring me the book. And at that time in your life, when you don't have much sand in the hourglass left, there's only one book you want to read, isn't it? He said, bring me the book. So the nurse brought the man his Bible. A few hours later, he passed away. Dr. McKay came in to do the final write-in, pronounce him dead, and he noticed that old gnarled hand holding on to that Bible as he lay there in the bed. He had no family. Nobody else was around. He got to eye that Bible and he said, that thing looks familiar. Nurse, hand me that Bible. The nurse picked the Bible up, brought it over to the doctor, and the doctor saw it. His hand started to tremble. He opened it up and on the fly leaf of that Bible, He saw His name written there in the handwriting of His mother who had long passed from the earth. And there inscribed in His mother's chicken-scratched handwriting was her favorite verse. Psalm 85 and verse 6, Will Thou not revive us again? Revive us to Thy joy, O Lord. Dr. McKay said that he went to his office Broke down in a way that would have been embarrassing. Sobbed uncontrollably like a baby. Turned in his Bible to find what information he could about how he could be saved. Surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Became a Presbyterian minister. And then he wrote the words of that great hymn that we sing from time to time. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. And I'm telling you, if God can do that in the heart of a William McKay, then friend, He can do it in the life of anybody sitting in the pews here at this church. He can do it in the life of the worst drunkard or drug addict that's a hold up somewhere outside of this building. He can do it in the life of the most crooked and corrupt church. Revive us again, oh Lord. Hallelujah, amen. Revive us again.